Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the fourth of my Gresham lectures on how Shakespeare's imagination was shaped by the inheritance of classical antiquity. Huge thank you to all of you here in the auditorium for turning out on such a cold night. And welcome to, uh, to those of you who have decided to sit by your firesides and watch it on the live stream. Um, also, a little apology. I uh, uh, had to write the brief summary of these lectures months in advance. And I said uh, in the original summary that this lecture was going to t contain uh, some material about the Roman poet Horace. In fact, I had so much to say about Cicero that Horace doesn't come into it. So if you're a massive fan of Horace and are solely here for the Horace references, you may leave now, but come back in week six when Horace will feature in my lecture on Shakespeare and the idea of fame. But this is mostly about Cicero, and inevitably in thinking about politics and ancient Rome, it's mostly about Coriolanus and Julius Caesar. But I actually want to begin with Shakespeare's English history plays. From the time of Shakespeare's birth, until he reached artistic maturity in the late 1590s. There were religious wars between Catholics and Huguenots in France. Ben Jonson served as a soldier, and Christopher Marlowe seemingly as a spy in the religious wars in the Low Countries. In 1569, the Catholic nobility of Northern England, led by the Earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland, attempted to supplant Queen Elizabeth I and place Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne in her place. For these reasons, the fear of civil unrest was pervasive. That is why Shakespeare began a play about the rebellion of an earlier Earl of Northumberland, with the king conjuring up sanguinary images of English soil daubing her lips with her own children's blood, of the intestine shock and furious clothes of civil butchery. The second half of the 15th century, the century before Shakespeare, had been a time of aristocratic division, or to follow the title page of one of the first of Shakespeare's plays to appear in print, The Contention of the Two Famous Houses of York and Lancaster. That's the play that eventually was called Henry VI, Part Two. In his historical novel, Anne of Geierstein, published in 1829, Sir Walter Scott coined the term the Wars of the Roses as a description for those contentions between the houses of York and Lancaster. And he did so under the influence of a famous but completely unhistorical scene in Shakespeare's Henry VI Part I, where representatives of the rival households pluck red and white roses in the garden of the Temple Church here in the city of London. The notion that Henry Richmond's victory at the Battle of Bosworth Field, his defeat of Richard III, and his marriage to Elizabeth of York had reconciled the two houses, united the nation, and established a new dynasty, was essential to the self-fashioning narrative of the Tudor monarchs. So it's a rather extraordinary thing that we talk about the Wars of the Roses, but we only owe that term to Sir Walter Scott's reading of a scene that Shakespeare invented. Now, the reality is that the Wars of the Roses, as we now call them, were really confined to the great lords and their retinues. Life in much of England carried on as if nothing had changed. But it suited the Tudors to describe the immediate past as a national catastrophe so as to make their people think better of the present. Make them think long and hard, too, about resistance to the reformed regime, which would inevitably bring new broil. And in order to press this argument, they looked to ancient Rome, as may be seen from the opening paragraph 
of the hugely influential book that was the starting point for Shakespeare's thinking about history, politics and government. And that's the book of which I've put the very dense title page up on the screen, Edward Hall's Chronicle History, called The Union of the Two Noble and Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York, being long in continual dissension for the crown of this noble reign and with all the acts done in the time of the princes, both of the one lineage and of the other, beginning at the time of King Henry IV, the first author of this division, and so successively proceeding to the reign of the high and prudent King Henry VIII, the undutable, indubitable flower and very heir of both the said lineages, a short and catchy title. <laughs> um, but the, the book begins like this. What mischief hath insurged in realms by intestine division? What depopulation hath ensued in countries by civil dissension? What detestable murder hath been committed in cities by separate factions? And what calamity hath ensued in famous regions by domestical discord and unnatural controversy? Rome hath felt, Italy can testify, France can bear witness, and especially this noble realm of England, can apparently declare and make demonstration. For who abhorreth not to express the heinous facts committed in Rome by the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey, by whose discord the bright glory of the triumphant Rome was eclipsed and shadowed? And I think that was a paragraph that burned itself into Shakespeare's political consciousness. He sets out in his plays to show that what Hall variously calls intestine division, civil dissension and domestical discord was the worst form of strife. Now, as you see from that passage I read, for Hall, the classic example was what he calls the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey in ancient Rome. The emotive term at the core of the argument there was actually first recorded in writing by the Roman politician and orator Cicero. Bellum civile, civil war, a phrase coined by Cicero. And indeed, soon after, Cicero gave currency to the idea that civil war was a distinctive category of strife. Julius Caesar himself began his Commentarii de Bello Civili, giving his version of his conflict with Pompey and the Senate. A century later, the poet Lucan wrote antiquity's most influential treatment of the theme, Bellum Civile, which began with the claim that no foreign sword has ever penetrated so. It's, it is wounds inflicted by the hand of fellow citizens that have sunk deep. Or as Christopher Marlowe put it in his translation of Lucan's first book, no foreign foe could so afflict us. These plagues arise from reek of civil power. So in Shakespeare's time, there are English translations, as I say, by Marlowe of Lucan on civil war, translations of Julius Caesar too, and another book uh, written by the historian called Appian about the Roman wars, both civil and foreign. So there's that idea of there's two kinds of war, civil and foreign, and civil war is the worst. Now, interestingly, accounts of what we call the Wars of the Roses at the time, in the late 15th century, never use the term civil war. That term only emerges when the Tudors borrow from Cicero and Caesar in order to re-describe the war 
that the wars that Henry VII brought to an end. So we find Roger Ascombe, who was Queen Elizabeth's tutor, talking about the bloody civil war of England between the House of York and Lancaster. And indeed, in the uh, official record of the coronation progress of Queen Elizabeth, we read, Therefore, as civil war and shed of blood did cease when these two houses were united into one. So Shakespeare's history plays, both ancient and modern, are all marked with the Ciceronian idea of the peculiarly heinous nature of civil war. In his Roman world, there are the civil wars of Titus Andronicus and Julius Caesar. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy, we hear in Julius Caesar. And in those English history plays, civil strife is the linking theme. Richard II introduces it, the dire aspect of civil wounds ploughed up with neighbours' swords. The two parts of Henry IV act out the intestine shock and furious close of civil butchery in a poor kingdom sick with civil blows. Henry V, of course, temporarily suspends it by means of foreign war, the war in France. But the shadow is always there, as the king recognises. Prince, uh, King Henry. Now beshrew my father's ambition. He was thinking of civil wars when he got me. And in Henry VI, it is back. Part one, civil dissension is a viperous worm that gnaws the bowels of the commonwealth. Part two, methinks already in this civil broil, I see them lording it in London streets. Part three, conditionally, that here thou take an oath to cease this civil war. But it only does cease with Henry Tudor's victory at the end of Richard III, when after Bosworth Field we hear, now civil wounds are stopped, peace lives again. But maybe there was an unintended consequence of the mid-Tudor propagandists' invocation of the Roman idea of civil war in the context of the history that brought the dynasty to power. Civil war surely implies another of Cicero's terms, the term civitas, civitas, the social bond of the kives, the citizens united by law. To re-describe the aristocratic contention between the noble houses of York and Lancaster as a civil war was to create an arena for the corporate voice of for civitas, for citizens, and thus for the notion of a public good, what Cicero calls race publica. Cicero, after all, was in the business of defending the Roman Republic, which had been founded, as Shakespeare reminded his audience in his poem The Rape of Lucrece, on the expulsion of a monarchy. Those of you who were here last time will remember I briefly touched at the end of that lecture on how, having written his erotic poem Venus and Adonis, Shakespeare then wrote a second narrative poem, a historical poem based on ancient Roman history, the story of how the son of Tarquin, the king of Rome, rapes the virtuous Lucrece, the painting there, famous painting by Titian of the scene, and as a result of that, Lucrece's family get together and they expel the Tarquins, they expel the kings and establish the Republic. Binding the nation together after the civil dissension of the 15th century was all well and good. 
But in leaning on the Roman example of state building, Tudor political discourse was opening the way for the civitas to turn against the monarchy, and thus, in the next century, for a genuine civil war in which the monarch in the form of King Charles I was removed. Among the most widely read classical texts of Shakespeare's age were the Roman historian Livy's account of the expulsion of the Roman Tarquins and Cicero's many defences of the Roman Republic. So what were the options for the ordering of a state? In Coriolanus, Cominius launches into a formal encomium, an act of praise, of Coriolanus, in which he argues for the supremacy of the great warrior hero. And it takes the form of a memory of the young warrior's initiation into battle. This is Cominius and Coriolanus. At 16 years, when Tarquin made a head for Rome, he fought beyond the mark of others. So what uh, Cominius is saying here is that after the expulsion of the kings, the Tarquins, they marched back to try to retake Rome, and Coriolanus was in the forefront defending Rome against the returning tyrant. Our then dictator, with whom all praise I point out, saw him fight when with his Amazonian chin he drove the bristled lips before him. He bestrid an erpressed Roman and, with the consul's view, slew three opposers. Tarquin's self he met and struck him on his knee. In that day's feats, when he might act the woman in the scene, he proved best man in the field and for his mead was browbound with the oak. His pupil age man entered thus, he waxed like a sea, and in the brunt of seventeen battles since, he lurched all swords of the garlands. It's an astonishingly rich speech, creating in one speech a cast of politically diverse characters. There is Tarquinius Superbus representing tyranny marching against Rome. In striking him, Coriolanus is defending the Republic. The on-field witness is a consul, that's an elected representative of the Republic, who has temporarily been given the absolute authority of what Cominius calls a dictator. Under the, the point there is that under the Roman equivalent of what we might call an Emergency Powers Act, a consul could temporarily be given supreme power to lead the state in time of war. Coriolanus himself is seen as a boy of 16, smooth-chinned and thus perceived as feminine, Amazonian, wonderfully suggesting both military prowess, Amazonian great female warriors, but also the sort of femininity of his youth. And in this action, he wins a civic crown. He saves an overpressed Roman. He becomes a man. But I think that moment where Caius Martius meets Tarquin's self, Tarquin's self he met, raises the fleeting fear that he may one day become a second Tarquin, a permanent, perhaps, as opposed to a temporary dictator. Of course, that is the fear of the people as manipulated by the tribunes when it comes to the moment that Coriolanus is elected consul. The people vote for him, they give him their voices, but then they are persuaded by the tribunes of the people to withdraw their votes. Initially, the suggestion is that Coriolanus should be executed, thrown from the Tarpeian rock, because 
he despises the people and is going to behave like a tyrant. Eventually, there is a compromise and he's sent into exile and that's when he then joins Ophidius, his old enemy, in marching against Rome. What is striking is that the language around the election of Coriolanus as consul closely echoes the language of nascent Elizabethan and Jacobean democracy. That's to say, the word that keeps being used about Coriolanus's election is the voices. He relies on the voices of the people. And the point of that is that the way that people were elected to Parliament in Shakespeare's time was through voices. So there wasn't a, a ballot paper that you put in a box, but what would happen would be that for each election, uh, the sheriff would gather the people who had the right to vote, which is property owners, uh, at the county court and ask for each candidate, for, for the people to give them their voices. And you, you would shout out uh, the, the name of your man and the sheriff would work out who had most voices. That was how you had most votes. And just occasionally, when there was a very closely fought election, there would actually be a head count. Uh, the old word for head is poll. And that, of course, is how we get the idea of a, of a poll. So there's a, a very interesting moment where one of the tribunes in Coriolanus um, says, have you a catalogue of all the voices that we have procured set down by the poll? The suggestion there that this is going to be a very close-run election. So the dilemma that Shakespeare is exploring in Coriolanus is that to be successful in war, a state needs strong leadership, perhaps needs a dictator, but that the restless man of military action has no time for the inglorious arts of peace. The question of what to do with a returning soldier was all too familiar, of course, from the case of the Earl of Essex, who famously, having conquered the Irish, or not actually fully succeeded in conquering the Irish, um, returned uh, to London and before long was launching an attempted coup d'etat against Queen Elizabeth. Interestingly, a sermon was given in St Paul's churchyard, not far from here, just a week after the Earl of Essex's execution, specifically comparing him to Coriolanus as represented by Plutarch. Of course, the other classic story about a great military general returning to the city is the story of Julius Caesar, which Shakespeare dramatises in 1599, exactly when the Earl of Essex is in Ireland, dramatises probably as the opening play for the New Globe Theatre. The success of Julius Caesar in his Gallic Wars and his invasion of Britain gave him supreme military power. Fearing the consequences of this, the Senate ordered him to relinquish his command and return to Rome. He refused, he crossed the Rubicon with the 13th Legion, he precipitated civil war. He then defeated Pompey in the war, and that meant that he could be proclaimed dictator perpetuo. And that was a constitutional turning point. As I've said, dictator was meant to be a temporary role to, to cope with an emergency. A dictator in perpetuity was effectively an absolute ruler who might as well be crowned emperor or monarch. Interestingly, the earliest example that the Oxford English Dictionary finds for the word dictator meaning an absolute ruler as opposed to merely a chief magistrate 
with, with power for a limited period, is a play by Christopher Marlowe, The Massacre at Paris, uh, where the guys, who's the kind of military figure there, it, it, it said to him, wear our crown and as dictator, make or war or peace. And of course, it is with the offer of a crown to Julius Caesar during his triumph that Shakespeare's tragedy begins in 1599. Julius Caesar's great political opponent, the principal defender of the values of the Republic, the most eloquent orator, arguing against the idea of a dictator, a dictator perpetuo, was Marcus Tullius Cicero. As Plutarch noted in the life of Julius Caesar, Cicero saw the danger from very early in Caesar's meteoric career. Cicero, for the Elizabethans, was the embodiment of the Roman Republic. When he was consul, he was responsible for the suppression of the conspiracy of Catiline, uh, a conspiracy that was dramatised in a play by Ben Jonson, a rather boring and unsuccessful play, actually. But uh, um, uh, this the image here is a, a 19th century imagining of, Cat uh, of Cicero denouncing Catiline um, in, in the Roman Senate. And Cicero's great speech against Catiline was thought of as the, the great defence of the Republic. Plutarch, um, in his Life of Julius Caesar, the source for Shakespeare's play, you've got the first page of it there, says this of Cicero. Cicero, like a wise shipmaster that feareth for calms of the sea, was the first man that, mistrusting Caesar's manner of dealing in the Commonwealth, found out his craft and malice, which he cunningly cloaked under the habit of courtesy and familiarity. And indeed, Cicero's climactic statement of the Republican position came later in his Philippic, uh, when he poured the blame on Mark Antony for offering the kingdom to Caius Caesar, perpetual dictator, and thus destroying laws and courts of justice by the substitution of kingly powers. Was it for this, said Cicero in a famous oration, that Lucius Tarquinius was driven out, that Spurius Cassius and Spurius Milius and Marcius Manlius were slain, that many years afterwards a king might be established at Rome by Marcus Antonius, though the bare idea was impiety. Well, given that Cicero was such a central figure in the story, it's rather extraordinary what a small part he has in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Early in the play, we hear that he is a, a looker-on with ferret eyes. Then Cassius asks Casca whether Cicero said anything in reaction to Caesar's initial refusal to accept the crown. It was Greek to me, replies Casca, setting up the image of Cicero as a learned and loquacious intellectual, a thinker and not a man of action. And it's foreseen after that that the character of Cicero speaks his only four lines in the entire play. He greets Casca. Good even, Casca. Brought you Caesar home. Why are you breathless and why stare you so? And Casca replies by describing the stormy weather, suggesting that it portends civil strife. Cicero pushes him further on that. Did he see any strange events? Yes, says Casca. A panoply of unnatural occurrences at the hand of a slave flaming like a torch but remaining unscorched. A lion wandering peacefully past the capital, ignoring the passers-by. A hundred women looking like ghosts because they thought they'd seen men all on fire walking through the streets. An owl hooting at midday. Indeed, 
says Cicero in reply, it is a strange disposed time, but men may construe things after their fashion, clean from the purpose of the things themselves. And then his last speech is merely a good night and a suggestion that it might not be wise to walk out under such a disturbed sky, kind of weather warning. But we don't see Cicero again. But he is the subject of two further exchanges in the play. When Cassius and his co-conspirators go to the brooding Brutus the night before the Ides of March to discuss who will join them in carrying out the assassination the next day, he asks, but what of Cicero? Shall we sound him? Cassius is convinced that Cicero will stand very strong with us, an intuitive view in the light of Cicero's track record of defending the Republic. Casca and Cinna strongly agree with Cassius, and Metellus Simba comes up with a powerful argument, a kind of buck-passing argument. Oh, let us have him for his silver hairs. Cicero's old by this time. For his silver hairs will purchase us a good opinion and buy men's voices to commend our deeds. It shall be said, his judgment ruled our hands. Our youth and wildness shall no whit appear, but all be buried in his gravity. But Brutus slaps down this suggestion. Oh, name him not. Let us not break with him, for he will never follow anything that other men begin. Cassius and Casca defer to this view and agree to leave him out. But non-participation in the actual assassination does not save Cicero. On the eve of the Battle of Philippi, we hear that he is one of 70 senators who have been put to death by the opponents of Brutus and Cassius, the triumvirate of Octavius, Lepidus and Mark Antony. So how are we to read Shakespeare's brief sketch of Cicero on stage? His speaking Greek, his gnomic remarks about misconstrual of the signs in the skies, his exclusion from the conspiracy, and his death by order of Caesar's supporters, one of whom will eventually become the Emperor Augustus, and another of whom is the Mark Antony, against whom the historic Cicero delivered his blistering Philippics. Well, in the life of Marcus Brutus... Plutarch claims that the reason the conspirators did not include Cicero was because they were afraid that he was a coward by nature, made more cowardly by old age, and that he might, to quote Plutarch in the English translation that Shakespeare had in front of him as he wrote the play, he might quench the heat of their enterprise, the which specially required hot and earnest execution, seeking by persuasion to bring all things to such safety as there should be no peril. Now, there's many a passage in Julius Caesar, as there is in Antony and Cleopatra and Coriolanus, where Shakespeare simply translates Plutarch into verse. And he could easily have done that here. He could have written something like this. Born a coward, his fear increased by age, he'll quench the heat of this our enterprise, which requires earnest execution. Let him not persuade in name of safety when this necessity calls for peril. But that's not what Shakespeare wrote. I've written those iambic pentameters uh, versifying Plutarch. But instead, Shakespeare gives this explanation based on vanity. Cicero would be unwilling to play second fiddle in another conspirator's orchestra. Now, of course, the purpose of that is to reflect well on Brutus. The point is, his agonising about whether or not to join the conspiracy is entirely out of principle his doubts have nothing to do with a desire not to play second fiddle to Cassius. Do you remember Brutus in that key scene, the great scene where the conspirators come to him the night before the assassination? His line of reasoning kind of goes like this. I have nothing personal against Caesar, but absolute power will corrupt him. 
then I owe it to my forefathers to defend the Republic. Brutus is defended from Lucius Junius Brutus, the man who expelled the Tarquins. Then I hesitate because my state of uncertainty is like a form of insurrection. I hesitate still more because the conspirators come under the cover of darkness, suggestive of duplicity and evil. I don't like the idea of us binding ourselves to the deed by way of an oath, because if we are to do it, we should do it out of honesty. No, don't involve Cicero. No, then he says, don't kill Antony as well as Caesar. That will make us seem too vengeful. All the arguments against, and then the conspirators depart, and Brutus has not made a commitment to them. Portia then comes on, and that raises the possibility his, his wife might dissuade him. But before he has the opportunity to share with Portia the secrets of his heart, he's interrupted by a knock at the door and the entrance of Caius Ligarius. Caius Ligarius, I bet you that's not a character in Julius Caesar you remember well, but I want to suggest that his intervention is really important here. Caius Ligarius comes on and says that he, he's a sick man, he's physically ill, but he says if Brutus participates in the conspiracy, he will be cured. And he is. This is the thing that finally persuades Brutus. The idea that he will participate not out of his own ambition, but in order to cure his friend Ligarius. He says of Ligarius, he loves me well and I have given him reason. Now, I think Shakespeare is always very careful when making the choice of which lines to give to which character. And it's in fact Metellus Simba who has the idea of involving Caius Ligarius as a way of winning over Brutus. And he does it in the speech straight after the one in which he suggests involving Cicero. So Metellus is clearly thinking, get Cicero and we'll have the dignity of age and the leading voice of Republican ideals on our side and that will be enough for Brutus. But Brutus says, no, not going to involve Cicero. So then Metellus has to come up with an alternative idea, which is that of using Ligarius. If Brutus won't be persuaded in the name of Ciceronian ideology, he will be persuaded in the name of friendship. And indeed, when Ligarius does appear, he credits Brutus with his instant recovery. By all the gods that Romans bow before, I here discard my sickness. Soul of Rome, brave son, derived from honourable loins, thou, like an exorcist, hast conjured up my mortified spirit. Now bid me run, and I will strive with things impossible. Yea, get the better of them. What's to do? Well, kill Caesar and redeem the state. That's what's to do, Brutus replies. Soul of Rome, he calls Brutus. But it was Cicero who was traditionally regarded as the soul of Rome. After that Catiline conspiracy, the, the Senate gave him the title Pater Patria, father of the fatherland. But here Cicero is displaced and it's the spirit of friendship that spurs the action. Well, of course, the second half of the play tells the story of the unravelling of the conspirators' hopes for Rome and the dissolution of their bond of friendship. It moves towards the Battle of Philippi, with no time uh, along the way for the, for the delivery of those Philippic, Philippic orations in which Cicero tarred Antony with the brush of Caesar, Caesar's ambition and tyranny. The irony is that in the course of his campaign against Antony, Cicero, who by this time bitterly regretted that Brutus and Cassius had not killed Antony as well as Caesar, legitimised the private army of Octavius 
and thus inadvertently hastened the eventual demise of his beloved republic that came with Octavius assuming the title of Princeps, of Emperor, and the name Augustus Caesar. So Cicero doesn't appear again in the second half of the play, but as I've said, his death is invoked, invoked perhaps as a symbol of the death of the Republic. Though Shakespeare doesn't use the detail, it is notable that in Plutarch's Life of Brutus, which again he has open on his desk as he's writing, immediately after the passage about the exclusion of Cicero from the conspiracy, um, there's a marginal note uh, in which Plutarch writes, civil war worse than tyrannical government. Well, Cicero would probably have thought civil war and tyrannical government were equally bad. But in the 1590s, with the shadow of that past century's civil wars and religious divisions, which I talked about at the beginning of the lecture, it might just have been politic for Shakespeare to assent to this idea that civil war is worse than tyrannical government. Well, Shakespeare derived the detail of Brutus curing Ligarius from the life of Brutus. But there's no doubt that he also read the life of Julius Caesar in Plutarch's lives. So, for example, Caesar's famous line, cowards die many times before their death, the valiant never taste of death but once, is clearly derived from Caesar's saying of death, uh, which in the translation Shakespeare read goes, it was better to die once than always to be afraid of death. That was the line um, in Shakespeare that when uh, the famous copy of Shakespeare's complete works was passed around by the apartheid prisoners on Robin Island, they were each asked to mark their favourite line. Nelson Mandela marked that line and put the date, and, and there it is. Well, by the same account, if Shakespeare read the life of Julius Caesar and the life of Brutus and the life of Antony, surely he would have turned to the life of Cicero, which is also in that great translation by Thomas North of Plutarch's Lives. And fascinatingly there, he would have found the backstory explaining that line of Metellus Simba, Caius Ligarius doth bear Caesar hard, who rated him for speaking well of Pompey. Caesar had accused Ligarius of treason because he supported Pompey during the Roman civil wars. And the only thing that had saved Ligarius from execution was the persuasive power of his defence counsel, who was, guess who, Cicero. As the marginal note puts it in North Plutarch, the force of Cicero's eloquence, how it altered Caesar. And I think this passage, which I'm going to read at length, is one of the most memorable examples in Plutarch of the transformative power of rhetoric. So this is why we have a, a professor of rhetoric. For a professor of rhetoric, Cicero is the great exemplar. So this is, this is Plutarch. Um, Ligarius, being accused to have been in the field against Caesar, Cicero took upon him to defend his cause. And that Caesar said unto his friends about him, what hurt is it for us to hear Cicero speak, whom we've not heard of long time? For otherwise Ligarius, in my opinion, standeth already a condemned man, for I know him to be a vile man and my enemy. But when Cicero had begun his oration, he moved Caesar marvellously. He had so sweet a grace and such force in his words that it is reported Caesar changed diverse colours, and showed plainly by his countenance that there was a marvellous alteration in all parts of him. 
For in the end, when the orator came to touch the Battle of Pharsalia, which is where Caesar defeated Pompey, then was Caesar so troubled that his body shook with all, and besides, certain books he had fell out of his hands, and he was driven against his will to set Ligarius at liberty. Well, I don't think there could be a better example of the way in which courtroom oratory has theatrical power. Caesar's mind is so moved by Cicero's speech, it's troubled, his face changes colour, and the persuasive words provoke a bodily reaction, the dropping of his books. It's exactly effects of this kind that Shakespeare's characters strive for in their on-stage orations. So the fact that Ligarius owes his life to Cicero's rhetorical genius binds the two characters together and reinforces the significance of Metellus invoking them one after the other. So it's noteworthy then that Ligarius is the one conspirator who's not actually present for the assassination. His absence, I think, stands in for Cicero's exclusion. And yet, after Brutus's rhetoric persuades the plebeians to revenge, seek, burn, fire, kill... Sorry, after, I beg your pardon, after Mark Antony's rhetoric persuades the plebeians to revenge, seek, burn, fire, kill, slay, the people set off with brands to set fire, not only to the, to the houses of the conspirators who stabbed Caesar, but also that to Ligarius. Cicero the orator, Cinna the poet, who you remember is mistaken for Cinna the conspirator and torn to pieces, and Ligarius, the man whose life is saved by Cicero's rhetoric and who later rises from his sickbed, are thus joined as men of words who will lose their lives as a result of the actions of the conspirators. The importance of Cicero in Shakespeare's classical imagination is not dependent on the breadth and depth of his reading of the actual sources. All educated men and women in the 16th century knew something of Cicero's life, death, talents and ideas. This was an influence transmitted by osmosis as well as by education. After all, it had been Cicero who had articulated the very basis of the kind of mixed constitution under which the Elizabethans believed they lived. In his De Republica, On the Republic, Cicero argued that the Roman state depended on a balance between the power of the magistrates, the authority of the Senate, and the liberty of the people. And despite the difference between the Roman legislative code and the English common law tradition of precedent, that division provided a model for the English separation of powers, whereby um, the law resides in the courts, authority among the aristocracy, and liberty in the House of Commons. But that model was inevitably in tension with the idea of monarchy, because, as Cicero kept reminding his listeners, the Republic was built on the expulsion of King Tarquin, and the Republic came to an end with the proclamation of Caesar as dictator perpetuo. Prudent as it was for Shakespeare to marginalise Cicero in Julius Caesar, the structural analogies between the Roman and the English state meant that republicanism inevitably shadows the play of Julius Caesar, heightening the sense that there are alternative models to the one in which a supreme leader wears a crown, a timely and dangerous reminder so late in the life of the Queen when her succession was unknown. 
But the Republican virtues espoused by Cicero were not only bound up with the question of representative government. It was also, in some ways, more centrally to do with a code of civic duty. The core argument of Cicero's defence of Ligarius was that the state depends on a process of reconciliation, of clemency. The code of vengeance, says Cicero, in Pro Ligario, belongs to fickle Greeks and savage barbarians. What Roman citizens do is bring things before the law and they have a quality of mercy. Portia's great courtroom speech about mercy, although it's Christianized, is in many ways exactly the same as Cicero's argument that mercy is what makes men godlike. The most influential of all Cicero's treatises was called De Officiis, of Benefits. It was his last major work before his denunciation of Antony. And although it was written in the form of a letter of advice to his son, its target audience was all the young men of the ruling class in Rome. And in Shakespeare's England, it was widely read in schools and university. Cicero set himself a task in the realm of practical ethics to balance individual integrity and social integration. He argues for the importance of honesty, honestus, um, and of public reputation, eudaimon, being well regarded, for dignity, decorum, gravitas, the importance of friendship and service to the state. Essentially, what Cicero creates there is the code of the gentleman that was inculcated in the education of the English elite for centuries. Mark Antony's repeated mantra, Brutus is an honourable man, derives its ironic force from the idea of honestus, honourableness, honour. The subtext is that if he were truly honourable, he would have been loyal to Caesar because Caesar was his friend. Loyalty to your friends is crucial to this code. In second and third books of Deofici, Cicero shows how this code of honour can be translated into social relationships by means of the practice of giving and receiving what he calls benefits. That's the meaning of his noun, officium. Officium means a voluntary service, a kindness, a favour, a courtesy, an obligation, a duty. The argument is that harmony between powerful families, friends, political allies, participants in a network of patronage operate through the exchange of services. The act of helping someone creates a bond whereby he will be obliged to offer reciprocal help in the future. Maybe the benefit will take the form of an appointment to a position of public service. And indeed, the role for the, 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 the word for such roles of public service was also officium, public office. This sense of public duty was the absolute basis of what may properly be described as the Ciceronian ethos of the ruling class in Shakespeare's time and perhaps of the ruling class in this country right through to the mid-20th century. Shakespeare uses the word duty nearly 200 times and office nearly 300. And one of his great themes, is one of the great themes of Deificius, the potential for a division between the person and the office, the sense that once one has a public office, one has two selves, both an individual self and an official self. 
When Brutus and Cassius fall out in the second half of Julius Caesar, it is precisely over breaches in that code of benefit. Cassius accuses Brutus of condemning someone called Lucius Pella for taking bribes and in so doing not paying attention to Cassius's letters asking for mercy for Lucius. Cassius' assumption there is that Brutus owes him a benefit that he wishes to pass on to Lucius Pella. But Brutus responds that Cassius has broken the code. You wronged yourself to write in such a case. Furthermore, says Brutus, Cassius himself has defied the duty of office by selling offices for gold. To bring bribery within this system of benefits was regarded by Cicero as particularly wrong. And I think that's because if you start asking the question, what's the difference between a favour and a bribe? The answer might be not very much. Cicero devotes a whole section of his book to exactly that question. He concludes, bribery is abhorrent because it's motivated by avarice, by greed. The public official, says Cicero, should be Spartan in private life, should subordinate personal greed to service to the state. Brutus has a further accusation. He says that he is so strong in honesty, again that Cicero term, honestus, that he cannot be hurt by insults, but that what riles him is precisely Cassius's failure to confer a benefit. I did send to you for certain sums of gold which you denied me, for I can raise no money by vile means. So Brutus is saying, I'm, I'm short of cash, um, I'm not going to get into you know, money, money lending, but because you're my friend, please lend me some money. And according to the Code of Benefits, Cassius should have done. But he doesn't. And Brutus is so exercised about this that he, he says it twice. He says again a few lines later, I did send to you for gold to pay my legions, which you denied me. Was that done like Cassius? This failure is castigated as supremely un-Roman because the practice of benefits was so central to the working of Roman society. And it may not be coincidental that news of the murder of Cicero comes just a few minutes later in the play, as if to symbolise the desecration of the old Republican code of mutual obligation that Cicero had recently anatomised in this hugely influential book, De Officiis. Cunningly, Shakespeare, in his history plays, both ancient and modern, and indeed in his political tragedies, forever holds opposing forces and ideologies in balance. He never openly advocates insurrection or assassination. He mocks the plebeians, even as he gives them voice. And he ultimately subordinates systematic Ciceronian republicanism to his fascination with the interior life of the self, as his patrician characters, such as Brutus and Coriolanus, wrestle with that code of honestus, amicitia, and officium, of honour, of friendship, and of benefit. Shakespeare preserves his neutrality, never speaking for a particular faction, and perhaps that was why he preserved his safety, whereas so many of his fellow dramatists found themselves having their plays closed down, or indeed finding themselves imprisoned. But by dramatising those breaches of the code of obligation, we see it there so strongly with Brutus and Cassius, dramatising them on the London stage and when called upon in commissioned performances in front of the aristocrats and indeed the monarchy in great houses and at court, 
By doing so, and by showing how such breaches lead to personal humiliation and civil broil, civil war, Shakespeare was implicitly offering warnings as to the dire consequences of division between the patricians of his day, such as Leicester and Burley, or Essex and Cecil. And in that wise counsel, perhaps Shakespeare was the Cicero of his age. Thank you.